0: Good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is John Cavell. And um, did there's something wrong? Good. Thank you. Am I doing am I doing something wrong? Am I bothering you in some way? Am I creating an awkward moment? And what might that be? What? You're just being you. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes we encounter somebody who's really not doing something necessarily wrong or unethical or illegal, just weird. <laughs> Have you ever had that? <laughs> like right now. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Let me, remember, this. when I go like this, that's when I want your help, you know? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, But yeah, you know, and and sometimes people are just weird, or they do weird things, or they say weird things, or they act in a weird way, and it makes us feel what? Weird. (laughs) Sometimes it makes us feel awkward. Sometimes it makes us feel uncomfortable. Sometimes it just really ticks you off, you know, because people are weird and some. And if you've never had that experience maybe you're the <laughs> just saying In Mark chapter 12 starting at uh, verse 28 it says one of the scribes approached Jesus and he asked him a question The scribe was uh, a religious scholar uh, they were experts in the Jewish law. And he approached Jesus and he said, which command... I just My voice just cracked. Which command... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm still in that phase, you know, that you start at around 12 and never leave. Um, he said, which is the, of the commands is the most important of all? You may have heard this passage before. Jesus answered, this is the most important... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, what's interesting about the word love, and I think I've even talked about this before in this setting. It was quite a while ago. Is that often when it's talking about God's love for people especially, or our love for God, You could take out the word love, and you could insert the word value. You could take out the word love, and you could insert the word value. You see, in the language in which the New Testament was originally written, there really wasn't a specific word that would communicate how we tend to use the word value. If I were to say, I value this, or I value that, they would often use the word love. And so if you took out the word love and put in the word value, especially when it describes God's love for people, I'll give you an example. In John 3, 16, very commonly read and heard verse, for God so loved or God so valued the world and everybody in it in this way that he gave his one and only son so that anyone who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so valued the world that he did something. And when you see these statements that describe God's love and you can take out the word love and you can put in the word value, it's often accompanied by an action. God so valued the world, the people in it, that he gave his only son. In Romans 5 it's a similar thing. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us or his own value of us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us before we even knew about it, before we ever thought about it, before it ever occurred to us that maybe we should talk to God about that or ask for forgiveness, before any of that was ever even a flicker in our minds, God had already determined our value such that he was willing to pour himself into the form of a human being and take on all the pain, the guilt, the suffering, of every sin ever committed by every person who ever lived. And what's interesting is that Jesus' reply, he said, the greatest command is to love or to value the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And then he says, the second is to love or value your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, and this is there's a very subtle thing here, there's no other command greater than these. Now, if you are a grammar fiend like I am, you might have noticed that he said, there's no other command, sil- singular, than these, plural. These two statements, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, Mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. those two statements combined make up one command. Not two commands. He's not talking about multitasking. It's one thing. And so Caleb asked me today, well he didn't ask me today, he asked me several weeks ago Did, to speak today on the subject of mental illness with which over the last several months I've gained some familiarity with, not through my own personal experience, although there's probably some value of looking at that, but um, I've been working in that field. And you know, loving God is one thing, but loving people is another thing because really, if you've been around church long enough, and you've been kind of identified with this whole Christianity thing, there's a point where you say, well, I love God, and I I love people the way God does, which really isn't true. We don't. We don't really love people the way God does. We don't do anything the way God does. If we did things the way God does, he wouldn't have had to die on the cross for us. And really, when you think about it, do we really love people? I mean, I don't even like a lot of people. There's a lot of people I don't like. Sometimes there's weird people who just irritate you, you know? And how are you supposed to, to say you love them? But, you know, but we're supposed to act like we're Christian or something. And so we say these kind of statements without ever, without, ho- or hoping that we'll never have to actually explain it or demonstrate it. But God says you're supposed to be doing this. And so I want you to Take that word value, and I want you to kind of put it aside, but we're going to come back to that, okay? So I'm going to get back to this word value. So remember that valuing people, valuing God, valuing people is the equivalent of love, okay? Now, um, mental illness. When we talk about mental illness, different people get different images in their mind. But what we're talking about today is a pretty broad spectrum. Things like depression, either chronic depression or persistent depression, also known as dissimia, um, anxiety or anxiety disorders, panic attacks, social anxieties, phobias, OCDs, PTSD, bipolar, borderline schizophrenia. These are all different sort of branches of this whole mental illness tree. And they have different effects and different degrees of intensity, But when the subject comes up of mental illness, people often experience different things when it comes to this subject, depending on their experience, depending on their relationships. Some people feel a fear of that, that mental illness label, whether it's from themselves or maybe there's someone they know or they love or they approach somebody and suddenly there's somebody talking to them and it's clear that there's something wrong. For others, maybe the response is sadness. For others, it's shame. Especially if you have a family member or someone to whom you're close that struggles with this and you're not sure how you want that sort of leeching onto you as a member of that family. For others, it's frustration, embarrassment. And so how do we respond? How do we reply to it? Well, sometimes we make fun of it. Sometimes we mock it because we don't really know what else to say. And maybe it's not really a personal, it's not connected to you personally, so it's easy to to just not have to connect with it. So we maybe make fun of it. Sometimes we judge it. Sometimes we blame it on the person who is suffering. Mental illness is pretty much almost the last disease for which we still blame the victim for having, as if they chose it for themselves. A few statistics in America. I'm not sure how many people are here this morning, but, you know, what I'm going to do is give you a few numbers, and so if you need to look around, count a few heads and figure out, you know, you could do that if you want to. But one in four adults experience some level of mental illness. So, you know, you try to just sort of subtly look down the row. And if you brought three people with you, then one of you, maybe. Forty percent of that 20% or that 25%, 40% of those people experience what's called SMI or serious mental illness. Less than half of the people that know something is wrong, that there is something going on, they could be experiencing some level of mental illness, will never actually seek out some kind of diagnosis or treatment. They know something's wrong, but they're afraid of what they might find out. And so they don't want to go get it discovered. 50% 50% of the people with any mental illness began experiencing symptoms by the age of 14. By the age of 14. Another 25% will experience those symptoms by the age of 24. 70% of incarcerated youth have a diagnosable mental illness to some level or, not, or other. It's a prevalent thing. And so what's the source of mental illness? Most people begin experiencing the symptoms or it begins presenting in childhood and in their teens. But it's an issue that's source is in biology, brain chemistry, genetic disposition, It can often be the result of trauma and abuse. Very rarely is it brought on by one person's own actions upon themselves. The vast majority of people suffering mental illness did not bring it upon themselves. Most of the time, it's a biological or a brain condition or it was forced upon them through adverse circumstances or abuse. I wear contact lenses most of the time. And then now, because I'm over 40... (laughs) What? Everybody over 40 is laughing. Because you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, there's that whole near-field vision thing uh, that is a neurological condition, not an not a, uh, eye lens condition. And so if I was just, you know, reading my iPad like that because I said I don't have my contacts in, you might think that's kind of weird. Or you could just say, well, look, you know, you don't need to do that. You just need to trust the Lord more. What did you do that made your eyes bad? Well, I was born to parents who all had eye, bad eyes, into a family of people with bad eyesight. I didn't wake up one day and go, you know what? I can see really well. But maybe I think I'd rather not. No. And we generally don't go around making fun of people who wear glasses or contacts. Or blame them for it themselves. Or give them some hyper-spiritual platitude that makes it sound like, well, if you were just faithful enough, then you could just walk away. We don't do that, typically. But we often will do that when it comes to mental illness. And what's hard to understand sometimes is the reality that God allows people to be born with adverse medical conditions. That's a tough subject. Why does God allow people to be born that way? Why does God make people that are born that way? In Psalm 139, starting at verse 13, it says this, for it was you who created my inward parts, talking to God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I'll praise you because I've been remarkably or fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. And that is true, for the person who was born in near perfect condition and it's true for the person who was born in not a perfect condition in an imperfect highly imperfect but yet there are certain ways that God makes people that we don't like that are distasteful that are annoying that are weird awkward difficult this is a painting i wouldn't buy this painting i didn't have to but i wouldn't buy it i i don't i mean i'm not an art expert nor an art connoisseur and so i don't particularly even like this painting but it's hanging in my house because my mom painted it. And if I began to make fun of this painting, what would you think of me? Say it out loud. Don't just think it. (laughs) What a jerk! His mom painted that. Well, and that's the thing. That's the reason I have it. My mom did paint that. And so that painting has value to me because of the person who created it, has value to me. And so that person who suffers from a mental illness, whether it is somewhat mild in its impact or severe, was made by God and is valued by God. And so if that person does not become valuable, valuable to us if for no other reason than that person is valuable to God because that person was created by God, exactly the way God decided to create them, it's not that person's problem. It's my problem. It's not their fault that I don't know what to do with them. That's my fault. It's not their fault that they're weird and awkward and difficult and so I can't handle them. I don't want to be around them. That's not their fault. That's my fault. Mental illness is the type of illness that can be treated but is typically not cured. There are other illnesses like that. Diabetes. Is often treated, but it's not necessarily cured. End stage kidney failure can be treated, dialysis, transplant, but not cured. Once you get to that end stage, you're done. You got it. And mental illness is kind of that same way. It's most often not necessarily cured, but it can be treated. And when we think of treatment for mental illness, what, we, what often comes to mind is the images that are put out by, on movies and TV, right? Maybe you've seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Maybe you've seen Nurse Ratchet. Wow, more people have seen Cuckoo's Nest than Nurse Ratchet. Whatever, okay. Older crowd, I get it. No problem, I can adjust. But that's typically what we're thinking about. You know, the classic thing where you got a bunch of people with hollow eyes just walking around standing in line, get a pill, and then go watch TV or play ping pong or chase butterflies out in the, in the lawn. That's often what we see, but that is not realistic. That's not what's happening. Significant steps are being made in the treatment of mental illness. An example of that is in our city in An organization called Community 43, which utilizes a pretty groundbreaking modality that has actually been around for a while. But it's a clinic and treatment center that results in creating a space for people who have mental illness to be able to reclaim and restore dignity and worth and a sense of purpose through the programs that they offer. There's over 330 facilities like that, treatment centers like this in over 30 countries, but, they're the, but it only exists in one place in Arizona. But it's a very successful modality, and it works. And it creates an environment in which people that are suffering from mental illness are no longer marginalized, but get to participate in meaningful work that has tangible benefits and results both in and of itself and for the people that perform it. That particular organization is not a faith-based organization. However, it was originally created and developed by people of faith who want to make an impact, especially in a difficult, chronic area like mental illness, and it's tough to do. But, you know, the whole mental illness thing is kind of like a swimming pool. Like if I walk over here, and let's picture that I'm standing on the side of a swimming pool, and these are the steps in the shallow end. And, you know, maybe the first step is a pretty mild, maybe low-level form of anxiety or depression, such that maybe your, your general practitioner, your primary care physician can uh, write you a prescription for an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety pill and it kind of stays right there and, you know, you're like approximately almost 70% of Americans who take some kind of pill for that. And then maybe you step down to the next step in the pool. And it's a little more severe, but still fairly manageable on your own. And you're able to kind of get along with it and deal with it without too many people finding out and without having to deal with any more of the stigmatizing factors that come along with it. And so maybe now you're in a more persistent um, depression or severe, a more severe anxiety, OCD, PTSD And then when you get all the way into the pool, (laughs) and now maybe you have a diagnosable serious mental illness, bipolar, borderline personality disorder, schizophrenia, even to the point where it's debilitating, you're unable to work, maybe you're on full-time disability. But you know, even when you're just up here, on that first step, am I in the pool? Yeah. And I can even tell by the expression on some of your faces, you don't want to admit it. It's uncomfortable, because we still don't think about it as an illness. We think about it as something that I don't have to be doing. Maybe I do it be, maybe I have it just because I'm weak. Maybe I have it because I'm not very smart. Maybe I have it because my will isn't strong enough to overcome it. Or maybe I have it because I have an illness that I didn't create, and I can't just remove it myself. That because of my genetic predisposition, biology, brain chemistry, trauma, by which I was victimized, I deal with a severe mental illness. And in our town, and in most major metropolitan areas, there are people that, the, that Jesus called the least of these. One-third of the homeless people that you see walking around the streets have a serious mental illness. Very possibly not receiving any kind of treatment. People with mental illness are nine times more likely to be incarcerated instead of hospitalized. Inmates with mental illness stay, tend to stay in jail four to eight times longer than inmates without a diagnosable mental illness for the exact same charge. And inmates with mental illness often experience severe abuse and exploitation, and by the time they are finally released from incarceration, their illness is worse than it was when they went in. And Jesus said, "'For I was hungry.'" And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then it says, the righteous will answer him. Well, Lord, when did we see you in these conditions? And he said, whenever you saw someone else, the least of these, in these conditions, that was me. You were seeing And then he goes on. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. What he's saying is when you see those people, you see me. And he didn't say people who were homeless, but not their fault. People who were hungry, but not their fault people who are in prison, but they're actually innocent. He didn't put any of those butts on there. He said, when you see that homeless person, when you see that hungry person, when you see that imprisoned person, see Jesus. See a person who is as valuable to God as you are. See a person for whom Jesus died on the same cross on the same day at the same time that he died for you. So when we see them, do we value them? Do we see Jesus? Do we see someone who is of such value to God that Jesus took on the pain, the guilt, the shame, the destructiveness of every sin ever committed by every person who's ever lived? What do we see? So what's my point? Well, here's the takeaway. I got a couple, like I always do. First one is this. If you think you might be struggling with a mental illness, it's normal to fear having it. It's normal to be confused. It's normal to be frustrated, discouraged. That's normal. And it's normal to want to wanna not deal with it. but there is help. You can live with that. You'd be surprised how many people in a, in a group this size, how many people are spending every day with living with some sort of treatment for some mental illness, whether you're on the first step in the shallow end or somewhere further on. God's not blaming you for it. You're not broken. But God wants to work a miracle in your life. It doesn't mean necessarily curing that, but it could mean giving you victory, giving you resources that can allow you to live without the fear and the shame and the embarrassment. Think about how you respond to someone who may be suffering with a mental illness. Do you actually respond to them as if they have an illness? Or is it like, well, are they, I don't know what choices they made to put them in that position. I don't know what is it about them. Or I just don't want to have to deal with it, so I just don't think about it. How do you think about people who are suffering with a mental illness? If there's someone to whom you're related, are you afraid, are you ashamed? Is it something we just don't want to talk about? Do you go to somebody that you know that has it, maybe it's a friend or a family member, and it's like, well, you know, just think positively. Just trust the Lord, as opposed to get help. Where can we get you help that you need? And it's going to be multiple resources. Pray for them the same way you would pray for anybody who is suffering with some form of illness. And this is the last thing. When you see someone hungry, Again, when you see somebody homeless, when you see somebody suffering with this or anything else, see Jesus. See Jesus. See someone who has value to God. It may not be a value that you see. You may have to honestly say, God, I don't get it. I don't see it and that person really bothers me, but I know they're important to you, and so I need to choose to treat them as such. Because if you and that person were standing before Jesus, who's Jesus going to be irritated more by? That person's awkward, embarrassing laugh or speech? or if I'm standing there and I made fun of that person and I didn't consider them valuable and I didn't pray for them as though they were incredibly valuable to God, who's Jesus going to be ticked with? Me. And I know that feeling because I think I irritate God a lot. We're going to bring the band out. I'm going to close this in prayer. This is a tough subject a little more awkward than what we usually talk about, and I wish I had perfect concrete answers, but I don't. But see Jesus. See the value. And allow God's value of you to pour through you and into the lives of each and every person with whom you lock eyes. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your grace, and mercy. Thank you for your love and forgiveness. Thank you that you are continually pouring those things into our lives all day, every day, top to bottom, side to side, whether we're asking for them or not. And you do it all the time, all day, every day. God, you made us You knit us together. And sometimes we're not sure why you did it the way you did it. But God, I want to commit us all into your hands and accept the value that you have for each one of us and that we would become conduits of that value into the lives of others. Every person we see, from the person we like the best to the person who drives us crazy. In Jesus' name.